0: you've tuned in to Get Connected. I'm your host Mike Agarbo and we have a great program for you today. We are Canada's number one tech radio program and on today's show we will uh, be talking about uh, a bunch of uh, tech related items. Uh, We've got uh, Brian Jackson on the line later in the show. He's going to tell us about a new humanoid robot that uh, their makers say will be available within two years. We've heard a lot about uh, robots uh, for many years saying they're coming, they're coming. Well, uh, this might be different. We'll also be talking with Carmi Levy and some interesting developments when it comes to AI, artificial intelligence, and medical diagnoses. Uh, he will be talking about how a- AI models are being used to detect things like breast cancer and Alzheimer's to a, uh, a very interesting degree they say that uh, for example in breast cancer diagnosis with AI they can uh, sometimes diagnose breast cancer four years before it happens well we'll be uh, chatting with Carmi all about that and how it works Uh, we'll also cover a few other stories with him uh, including a Canadian rover being developed to help find water on the dark side or the far side of the moon This is uh, kind of uh, an interesting uh, development. Canada, for a long time, has been uh, involved with the space program, developing the Canada Arm and uh, various other types of uh, robotic uh, tools. So it'll be interesting to see uh, where that all goes. And he's going to be talking about an AI photo guard. And this is kind of something I think we're probably going to need. We've uh, talked a lot about the developments of uh, artificial intelligence when it comes to uh, photography and developing uh, images. Uh, Well, this new tool will actually safeguard the images uh, that you have created from being digested by AI and being altered without your knowledge. But let's uh, look at some of the tech news uh, that's uh, happening out uh, there uh, right now. And this is, uh, I think a little bit for the old timers and, and the kids. This is an interesting statistic. Uh, vinyl, vinyl records have overtaken CD sales for the first time since 1987. Yes, they're still making CDs and, and records, but uh, vinyl has really had a big comeback uh, over uh, the past decade as uh, more and more people uh, purchase turntables and listen to the, uh, the way we used to listen to music uh, in the old days. They say that uh, as far as uh, physical sales of, uh, of music, uh, and believe it or not, it's still pretty up there. It's, uh, I think between 2021 and 2022, it was $1.7 billion, which is incredible. But uh, vinyl uh, now accounts for 71% of all physical music format revenue and that's just going to continue to uh, grow. Uh, Make no mistake, digital music is by far the dominant uh, way that uh, we do listen to music now, but it's kind of cool to see that uh, vinyl is uh, making a a bit of uh, a comeback. And uh, we also are looking at uh, Google. The Google CEO is defending his desk-sharing policy, policy, saying that some offices uh, are like a ghost town with the whole hybrid uh, working model that a lot of companies have adopted, especially the big tech companies, it looks like some of the Google employees uh, that are coming back into the office are not happy about sharing a desk, even though they might only be in there for uh, a few days at a time or even one day. Uh, But, uh, you know, obviously real estate is uh, very expensive and that's what Google's uh, CEO is basically saying. Uh, He's defending the cloud unit's new desk-sharing policy for employees, uh, basically saying that uh, the offices are practically empty and it doesn't make sense to have that much office space uh, and have everyone having a dedicated uh, uh, desk. What do you think? I think a lot of us are working hybrid uh, now. Do you still want to have your own personal space, even if you're only in there a couple days a week? It's a, it's an interesting uh, question. Moving on, I uh, want to give a shout out to the Dyson's Award. This is a, a contest that they run every year. Dyson, you're probably familiar with the the vacuum folks. Well, the James Dyson Award is an international design award that celebrates, encourages, and inspires the next generation of design engineers. It's open to current and recent design engineering students, and it's run by the James Dyson Foundation. The James Dyson. Charitable Trust is part of its mission to get young people excited about design engineering. So it's just opened up as of uh, March 1st, and entries close July 19th. And there are a number of different awards. Uh, A national winner will actually receive uh, $6,100. I think that's U.S. uh, money. And international runners-up will win uh, the same amount, $6,100. And the international winner will win $37,000. And they even have another category for a sustainability winner for another $37,000. So if you uh, want more information, uh, go to JamesStysonAward.org to check that out. We uh, talk a lot about Starlink on uh, this program. That's uh, Elon Musk's internet satellite company. Well, it looks like they've dropped the price again on the actual hardware for this and uh, what's again interesting about this internet service is that you can pretty well use it anywhere you can be in the mountains anywhere where you typically wouldn't get internet if you set up one of these uh, dishes and they're pretty small you can get some high speed uh, internet to your your home or for many uh, RV owners uh, this is uh, another fantastic uh, tool to keep them connected so typically Uh, It's $759, and they've got it on half price right now for $350, which uh, isn't uh, a bad uh, deal. But keep in mind, the monthly price, you uh, typically will have to pay about $140 a month for the internet service, which... Sounds like a lot, but you know, I look at my internet bill for my home and I think I'm paying over a hundred dollars just for internet alone, so it uh, kind of equals out. The one good thing about the monthly service is that you don't have to sign up and just keep paying like on a monthly basis, you can do it month to month, which is kind of uh, a cool thing. And for uh, the RV owners out there, it is a little bit more, uh, it's $170 a month for that access, but uh, for those folks that uh, is. Again, a bit of a a price, but if you've ever done any uh, camping in these RV campgrounds, the the Wi-Fi is typically not that uh, great. Uh, We're also following uh, another interesting uh, story. This is uh, something that revolves around the Ring video doorbell cameras. I've actually got, uh, you know, one of these installed, oh, two of them actually, one for my front and back door. And I've got the ring cameras uh, around the outside of the house uh, as well. But what's happening down in the United States right now, the law enforcement uh, agencies down there, uh, local and federal uh, law enforcement have, uh, I guess, found out that ring cameras can be a good source of <laughs> of footage if they're investi- investigating uh, crimes. The challenge is that uh, some people aren't happy about giving it up. The police do have to get a warrant for the footage. But here's the interesting part. This uh, one gentleman down uh, in the U.S., uh, police came to him with the warrant That included all five of his outdoor cameras and also added a sixth camera that was inside his house, as well as any videos from cameras associated with his account. So think about this. Yes, maybe they needed his footage because it captured stuff happening across the street, but they also had access to inside cameras. Apparently this guy, and I don't know why, uh, had cameras in his living room and also his bedroom, and also 13 more cameras that he had installed at his store that were associated with his accounts that literally would have nothing to do with the investigation. He was not happy about it, but couldn't fight it because it was too expensive so something to keep in mind uh, as you're putting in any of these security type uh, cameras and devices we're gonna have to take a break when we come back we're going to be talking about ai models that can detect alzheimer's and breast cancer months if not years before they happen you're listening get connected back after this you are back with the program mike agarbo here in studio today We're going to talk a little bit more about AI, artificial intelligence. It's uh, creeping in everywhere. And one area that I think I'm pretty excited about would be AI used uh, in health and uh, medicine, medical uh, industries. We've got Carmi Levy on the line with us uh, out of Toronto, one of our tech experts we uh, call upon. Thanks for joining us, Carmi.
1: Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: So there's some interesting stories that I think both of us have uh, been following this past week where ai has uh, been used to actually do early detection uh in uh i guess diseases such as uh, alzheimer's and even uh, breast cancer
1: yeah absolutely i mean it comes from us uh from a, a company called med RXI rxiv and basically what they're doing is they're using an artific- artificial intelligence platform to go through massive numbers of scans in this case 250,000 of them, and using machine learning to identify particular cases or potential cases with more accuracy than and, and scale and scope than any human radiologist ever could. Uh, and then, of course, over time, the more you do this, the more you learn what those markers are, the better you get at detecting it. It gets becomes more precise and earlier. And they're showing that uh in in terms of sort of numbers, it is a better diagnostician than the human. Uh, and what it can do then is it can offload a lot of that capacity from the humans, freeing them to do more value-added work. So, you you know, we know that AI can do remarkable things. Pretty cool seeing the medical community start to apply these to use cases that can literally save lives years before, because we know in cancer treatment, as with so many other kinds of diseases, early detection means much greater potential for living at all or living a better life to begin with.
0: Well, it's interesting, uh, you know, CNN did a story on this and basically said that it's, you know, potentially uh, it detects breast cancer four years before it developed in some cases.
1: That's remarkable. And and I think really that's an eye-opening number because up until now, you sort of figured, okay, you know, maybe if we had some better imagery, we might get a little bit of an advantage, but four years, absolutely remarkable. And I think it shows the groundbreaking capability of artificial intelligence to identify Changes, markers, um, you know, evolutions in the data that are so incredibly subtle uh, that no human would ever be able to pick up on them. And so to get that additional time to sort of almost move the timeline up by four years uh, is a remarkable achievement. And I think it suggests it should uh, help researchers, not just in this particular kind of cancer, but all kinds of cancers, all kinds of diseases, let them go back to the data sets that they've been building up, the imagery data banks from you know the the past number of years or decades and think how can i apply similar thinking to this so i would expect similar breakthroughs in all sorts of other diseases as artificial intelligence is increasingly applied to data that's been collected over the past number of years
0: yeah, my, my, my brain is just trying to comprehend how this could radically change um, early detection in a lot of these diseases. You know, we're just looking at AI now and we've been talking about it on the show for months, uh, you know, with things like chat GPT and some of these text to uh, uh, image uh, engines and how incredibly fast they've advanced. It's like exponential. And I just like, my brain just starts trying to think, you know, on, on the health side and early detection, how that is going to increase rapidly as well as, as we know with AI, it, it's all dependent on the data sets, isn't it? Right? Like how much data you input and kind of tell it, you know, this is cancer or this is not cancer. You know what I mean?
1: exactly artificial intelligence is like a, a giant vacuum right you you feed it data and then it learn it ingests it it analyzes it uh you know six ways from sunday and it arrives at, at a number of conclusions that wouldn't otherwise be possible using more conventional methods uh, and so uh I'll, you know in this case you know because the medical community is so heavily based on imagery type data so you, know, you go for a scan right if, if you're you know you, you go for a mammogram and that mammogram of course sits in a database somewhere imagine if you are uh, an artificial intelligence scientist doing research in the medical field you now have huge databases that you can literally point your ai at and say go go for it you'll see what you find and that's the really cool thing is we almost don't know what the results will be when we turn an artificial intelligence platform onto a particular data set but but we do know that it's going to see things that we couldn't otherwise see. And so I think that's really where this amazing opportunity lies Is we've been collecting all this information. The world is awash in data. What we lacked up until now has been really the ability to go through it and ident- identify patterns, identify trends, do upfront diagnoses, give us insight into that data, tell us what it means. Uh, you know, So obviously in healthcare, it's going to save lives. In government, it's going to allow better delivery of services for less money. Uh, in the financial services industry, it's going to allow more efficient uh, models uh, that allow us, you and me, to have better return on our investments. Um, so every sector is going to benefit from this, but it's especially uh, critical in healthcare because this is literally life and death. And existing technology hasn't been good enough at finding that needle in the haystack. Artificial
0: intelligence apparently is. This is also being used uh, in Alzheimer's as well.
1: It is, and I, I i say this as as uh you know my family has been touched profoundly by alzheimer's my grandmother uh was taken by it aunts uncles uh have been affected by it as well it's it's something that you know it's it's on our radar uh for our own use and so uh and so you know obviously if uh you know artificial intelligence can be used to identify signs of alzheimer's either in behavioral scans or uh, an actual scan of the brain based on Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of, th- of thousands of other uh, entries into a common database. Uh, then that can give uh, both patients, families, uh, you know, medical professionals that much more information to work with. It can give us back time that we wouldn't have otherwise had. Uh, so we're seeing it applied uh, in dementia research. We're seeing it applied in Parkinson's research. Uh, a friend of mine is a neurologist who's you know you know using te- new technologies to become a better diagnostician, feed the research that he spent his life on. Uh, So this is all absolutely huge, uh, and it will have significant impact on Canadian society because, as we know, the percentage of Canadians who are facing dementia and Alzheimer's diagnoses in the years to come is going to skyrocket. So the the more advanced notice we have, the better.
0: I just look at this technology again, and I wonder if this will be a great equalizer when it comes to... Medical attention and diagnosis. Do you know what I mean? Like, if if we have AI, which you know, I think can be rendered fairly inexpensively once that they've got this down. Like, you know, now you don't have to worry about having the world's best doctor to diagnose. You know what's wrong with you. Obviously, humans aren't going to go away anytime soon. You need the human uh, element. I would like to think so <laughs> in mm. in working with uh, other humans. But when you have a, a tool this powerful, I, I think that would just kind of cross every. Uh, you know, economic uh kind of level.
1: I think it absolutely does, especially looking at our healthcare system now. It's under under you know threat and attack and crisis to a degree greater than frankly any of us has ever seen in our lifetime. So by having these tools available we allow existing investments in healthcare to go that much further we democratize the delivery of healthcare Uh, we don't keep it behind a wall we don't limit it to certain geographies or you know the small number of really lucky patients who get to have an appointment with one particular renowned uh, doctor in a very specialized area in fact now we can put this tool in the hands of that doctor and they can then have a positive impact on far more patients than they would otherwise be able to and so it is, uh, I like to call it a great leveler. Um, and it doesn't mean that we don't need those doctors. Just like any earlier generation of technology, it didn't uh, obviate the need for professionals in the space. What it did was it gave them tools to cover that much more ground. And that's likely gonna be the case here. Uh, instead of helping you know dozens of patients over a given period of time, uh, they can help hundreds, thousands, even more. Um, and as a result, more people's lives will be affected positively because of this, because they weren't waiting years on some kind of waiting list just to get an appointment at the tech- Technology allowed them to get a diagnosis far sooner and get into treatment far sooner.
0: We've got Carmi Levy with us. Uh, Carmi, I want to get you to hang on the line. There's a couple other stories I want to talk to you about. One, um, some Canadian technology uh, that is helping search for frozen water on the dark side of the moon, and uh, something called PhotoGuard that stops your pictures being manipulated by AI. When we come back from the break, a little more with Carmi. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Eggerbo here in studio. Got Carmi Levy with me. He's uh, our good uh, friend and tech expert out of uh, Toronto. Uh, thanks for hanging on the line, Carmi. As always, you've always uh, following some uh, cool uh, technology stories that I wanted to chat with you about. And, and one of them, uh, I'm all about space, and I love this one. Uh, Canadians uh, are helping uh, try to find water on the dark side of the moon.
1: I love this. And, and I, I'm a space nerd too. I mean, I grew up watching shuttle launches and, you know, I still like, I I, I will follow it on social media. And I will stop what I'm doing in the middle of the workday if SpaceX is launching a Falcon 9. I'm just that weird. But, you know, there are close correlation between technology and aerospace and certainly Canada through the Canadian space industry and frankly, a pretty vibrant space industry. We've got, uh, we've got some really great uh you know the roots dug in this space uh you know Canadarm Canadarm 2 on the ISS Canadarm 3 on the lunar gateway um a lot of robotics happening on the international space station that it- directly a result of Canada. So, you know, this is big for us. And the news here, the Canadian Space Agency is working on a 30 kilogram rover that uh, within about three years, the plan is to launch it to the moon, have it land in the South Polar region and then go looking for water. We believe that there's water a few meters below the surface. And what's why that matters is uh if we, want to, if we want to go to Mars, we've got to get onto the moon and stay on the moon, and we've got to establish a base on the moon, and we've got to figure, figure out how to sustain that base. The only way we really do that is if we figure out, is there water there? Yes. How do we exploit it? This rover is going to do that. It's going to look for it, find out where it is, and then figure out how much there is there, and that will give huge amounts of information to future planners, NASA, European Space Agency, Canadian Space Agency, as they plan future Artemis missions and other missions to colonize the moon and then ultimately use that as a springboard to Mars. And so, you know, th- the fact that it's on the far side of the moon makes it even harder. You can't, you know, no, no direct radio connection with, with, uh, with earth. Um, so you've got to use satellites in orbit, lots of technological implications here that of course, Canada leads the world in terms of developing technologies to solve those problems. And, uh, ultimately back on earth, it means, more people with really cool jobs. It means schools that are churning out engineers who so can figure all this stuff out, uh, and all because they they you know might have been inspired as kids by a mission like this this is as exciting as it gets and uh and i'd be you know if you're not following the csa now please do because it's going to be one of the most exciting programs in the canadian space industry over the next few
0: years so obviously water is important for humans to survive we need it to obviously drink and and grow things but uh you know what other uses would that have you know propulsion for i guess spacecraft to get to mars
1: You know, it's all about sustainability. Up until now, if you wanted to bring water into space, you had to schlep it up from Earth, and that's incredibly expensive. There's a certain cost per pound uh, to bring whatever it is into orbit, and that cost can be thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, And so if you don't have to bring it up from the Earth over to the moon, if you literally find it on the moon, that has huge implications for the cost of a a lunar mission uh, and the ability of astronauts on the moon to get stuff done to have water to consume for themselves, for construction of moon uh, moon operations, and also for fuel for rockets that they'll use in and around the moon as well as to go to Mars. And so uh, basically this is, uh, you find water on, on the moon, you have essentially unlocked the potential of the moon to be that springboard into Mars, uh, as well as uh, a huge center of economic power for Earth as well. So uh, there's a lot riding on this, and this technology is absolutely fundamental to it.
0: Let's move on to another story uh, that I found interesting. Uh, There's a tool that uh, protects, potentially protects, uh, your your photo images from being altered. Yeah.
1: It's called PhotoGuard, and it's interesting because artificial intelligence has raised a whole lot of questions. And, you know, one of them is, and I say this as a photographer, it keeps me up at night, is... What happens if someone takes a photo that I've posted to one of my social media channels or that maybe I've sold to someone and then, you know, takes it and uses artificial intelligence to change it and then maybe resell it or use it for some purposes that I would not approve. So what PhotoGuard does is it uses what's called data poisoning. It comes from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, Um, a computer science professor and his team created this technology called data poisoning that it disturbs a, a number of pixels within a photo and it creates what they call invisible noise. So you look at the picture, you don't see it, but in the background deep in this sort of structural uh, sort of layers of that photo, uh, they, have, uh, they have sort of messed around with the pixels just a little bit. And what that does is when an artificial intelligence art generator which is the software that someone would use to you know take your photo and create something new with it without your permission if it tries to access that photo it's basically going to mess with it it's not going to allow it to manipulate your photo it essentially inoculates or vaccinates your photo your intellectual property against some artificial intelligence uh, out there messing with it it protects it which is really neat because Functionally, no one else would know. Uh, you know, if anyone was just looking at it on a web page, they would not know the difference. Uh, and what they're hoping now is it's still in the research stage, but they're hoping that this technology could be built into browsers, operating systems, networks, things like that, so that uh, that you know, you and I don't even have to think about it. We just know we posted online. Artificial intelligence is not going to be able to mess with it, thanks to this data poisoning technique.
0: Don't you think they can come out with tools to unpoison the image?
1: Oh sure, I mean I think every time you introduce it's you know remember in the early days of viruses and then then uh, you know software companies came up with antivirus protection and then of course the bad guys came up with ways to 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 work around the the antivirus protection. It's a never-ending game of cops and robbers. And so so certainly if if you want to mess with photos, if you want to build a business around violating other peep creators or photographers intellectual property, you'll find some technological way to do it, but data poisoning is a pretty important it's almost like the first generation of security software it's a pretty important milestone in ensuring that you and i have at least some degree of protection from the bad guys who are increasingly using artificial artificial intelligence to wreck our day so no this doesn't end the conversation but it certainly ups the ante uh, and it gives criminals something else to think about it as they as they try to you know violate our intellectual property rights
0: Carmi, they've already scraped your images off the web. I just
1: don't... <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm sure they have. And I, you know, periodically I will use reverse image search to go looking. And and my images have been used in all sorts of places. And I, I'll send a takedown notice and that will be that. But artificial intelligence kind of makes it even easier for them to propagate that kind of crime. So anything that we can add to our toolkit to allow us to stay protected is probably a good thing. I realize I I you know you can't draw a line and say, okay, we're done. We're good now, we're permanently protected. But I'll take it and then I'll wait for the next tool to come along because it's a never ending fight to hold on to our rights.
0: When we come back from the break, we've got Brian Jackson on the line talking about a new humanoid robot that's supposed to be here in two years to help us all. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this, you are back with the program. Mike Agarbo here in studio. I've got Brian Jackson with me from the Infotech Research Group, a global advisory company. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Thanks for having me, Mike. Going to talk about one of your favorite subjects, robots. And uh, it looks like there may be a a new robot uh, in town in the very near future.
2: Yeah, welcome to Robot Figure 01, Mike. An exciting name for a robot. And what this company, Figure, says is the world's first commercially viable humanoid robot. So this isn't like, you know, one of those boring manufacturing robots. It's going to uh, be like an arm or... Uh, you know, a little robotic component that moves around and assembles something or does one specific job. It's going to be like these futuristic robots like Commander Data or the Terminator that's walking around like a person.
0: Hopefully more uh, Commander Data than Terminator.
2: I'm hoping so too, yeah.
0: So so why, why are we even talking about this? We hear about companies all the time, oh, we're going to make a robot. Tesla's trying to make a robot.
2: Yeah, but as opposed to Tesla, which pretty much walked out its optimist robot with elon musk saying that uh you know making crazy predictions like he, did you remember what he said that ai powered humanoid robots would one day outnumber people well that's maybe some point in some distant future, at a galaxy far, far away, Elon. But, you know, in our lifetimes, we're just sort of more interested in whether a robot will actually ever come and fold the laundry for us. And Tesla, you know, they have no timeline for their robot. They just sort of march it out there when they need more press attention. But this figure company, we have to take it seriously because they've got the people, Mike. They've got a bunch of big brains, people that have worked for Boston Dynamics, for Google's robotics company. Um, And they've come together here and they say that they're going to market in less than two years and that they already have a robot, uh, like an alpha build prototype of a robot.
0: Okay, so they say it's going to be a humanoid robot that will actually be kind of aimed at consumers. Eventually. Eventually. The
2: first target is going to be for unsafe jobs. The company is talking up how there's too many unsafe jobs in the U.S., 10 million of them, they say. People that are doing hard labor tasks that maybe they shouldn't be doing. And to be honest with you, there's a lot of undocumented, uh, un, uh, safe jobs that are being done by migrant workers right now so they have a point there whether robots are the solution to it or not I'm not sure but this is what figure is saying Uh, so that's their first target right because the trick with these robots is how much does it cost at the end of the day and we're not sure what the cost of this robot is yet but clearly if we're talking about deploying it to manufacturing, warehousing, retail types of environments. They're thinking it's going to be a cost uh, that's expensive enough that only businesses would consider it at first. But it does have this little roadmap where it shows that it one day wants to sell this robot to consumers, thinking about the aging population that we have in our society, Mike, and how people really just want to be able to age at home and live comfortably. And robots could help you with that.
0: I don't doubt that, but I think we're still really far away. I look at the robots that are available now. Uh, Boston Dynamics uh, is a, a company that's kind of been at the forefront of robotics for the uh, past decades. Uh, you might recognize some of the robotic dogs. You know, We've covered it on the show before. Uh, and those dogs, I think there are a couple hundred That like a quarter of a million dollars for a robotic dog, and so how much is a robotic humanoid going to be if a dog costs a quarter of a million? And like I've I've seen different robotic uh, solutions. Um, You know, LG's got the folding um, robot uh, laundry robot, and it's just like I guess a pair of arms. And you know, they can't even get that right. (laughs) So how how are we going to get this humanoid thing going properly?
2: Yeah, it's a huge challenge. A big problem with very complicated engineering problems to solve Uh, so we'll see if this team lives up to the hype that it created I mean it released this promo video but as many people pointed out it's all CGI so we haven't really seen this prototype robot yet so of course there's lots of reason to be skeptical and you look at what boston dynamics has been able to do right they, they're the ones that release these videos of real robots dancing and doing backflips and tossing tools to people the most impressive stuff that we've seen from robots yet probably and uh even boston dynamics isn't trying to take its Atlas robot, which is its humanoid robot, to the market. They say they, they just say it's a research platform. We're still learning about this and we're a long way from commercializing this type of product. So the claims they're making are definitely impressive and to be taken with a grain of salt until we see real robots marching around, uh, carrying products around and putting things on shelves.
0: Well, there are, I mean, there's a whole bunch of obviously, um, things that have to go into making a successful humanoid robot. And again, one is just this thing walking and keeping balance. And I mean, that's one thing to walk and keep balance. But you know, as you were saying, the Boston Dynamics uh, Atlas robot, um, which is kind of a humanoid form, still looks like it's very bulky. Um, you know it shows it throwing like it's another thing to keep balance but also carry things and throw things do you know what I mean like that's a whole thing in itself and then just the uh, I guess the code the AI to make this whole thing actually function properly.
2: Yeah all the different challenges that you have to solve and we're just talking about getting the robot to move around and be able to physically do things. What if you want this robot to be able to talk to people and interact like a person with emotions and i noticed that when these robotic companies uh bring out a product right now they either focus on one thing or the other so it looks like this figure robot isn't going to be too interactive right nobody's taught they didn't mention having a conversation with it and when you look at its face it looks a lot like the tesla Optimus robot it's not really a human-like face it's just sort of like looking at a, a screen like looking at your phone and then on the other side of things mike i don't know if you remember the amica robot from ces in 2022 uh, it made a big splash there and it had a really humanoid face that looked like skin even and uh, it was able to make all sorts of different expressions that were really convincing in terms of Uh, conveying emotion using 17 different face motors and it had embedded microphones including uh, embedded cameras in its eyes and its chest and it was able to use facial recognition software to track the people that it was interacting with, recognize them, understand the emotions that they were experiencing and then respond to them and interact with them and hold a conversation. And it was even sort of witty. So pretty impressive conversation robot, but you didn't see it moving around.
0: How far away do you think we are from humanoid robots that can actually do real-world tasks. I I know they say that they're coming out with these robots to do dangerous jobs uh, at first, Um, but, you know, number one, the technology has to get there, and number two, the price. Like I said, when the robotic dogs cost a few hundred thousand dollars, um, you know, the humanoid robots are going to be killer expensive to begin with.
2: Yeah, so expensive, and uh, when you see figures say that they'll be able to release this in two years' time, I mean, I'm skeptical because I'm just wondering why all the different companies that have tried to solve this problem already for decades, haven't been able to do it and bring it to market. For example, if if you think that anybody could bring a robot to market uh, that's a humanoid and make it useful and commercialize it, it would be perhaps a car company. And Honda, released this Asimo uh, platform all the way back in the year 2000, so 23 years ago. And you know we saw demos and videos of this thing for years, kicking a soccer ball into a goal, serving drinks at a bar. And uh, this robot was never autonomous. It was always controlled from a portable controller. right? So they weren't even aiming for this level of complexity that we're seeing um, figure. And even Honda stopped trying to produce its robot commercially in 2018, and it's just reserved it as a research platform, uh, basically saying it just, it just helps us research things for other products. So the claims that Figure is making, it would be a real world first achievement. Uh,
0: yeah, I I doubt it highly. Like I even look at, I'm going to compare this to cars and Tesla. It's taking mm-hmm. them. like 10 years to actually get to a viable uh, point, like as a car company to actually churn out enough cars. Do you know what I mean? Like in the hundreds of thousands
2: Yeah, a a, a year in terms of really scaling up. And that's a car. Like, like it's not like they're order one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. it's, It's a car. I mean, yes, they're making an electric car, but it's kind of, you know, half of it's there already. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> as far as, you know, what it's supposed to do and, and look like. Whereas, you yes. know, the, the robot guys, like they're still figuring this out.
2: Yeah, the cars are a solved problem. And unless you're Tesla, do you think that all the previous ways being solved uh, should be reinvented? So perhaps that's why it took them so long to scale up. But this is a new category that's never been done before. And will really require a lot of net new research that hasn't been done in academia or commercially.
0: Well, uh, for the listeners out there, don't worry about the robots coming for us yet. We're taking our jobs. I think we're still many years uh, away. I want to thank you for joining us, Brian.
2: Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: That was Brian Jackson with the Infotech Research Group, uh, a global advisory company. Check them out. I want to thank all the folks that helped put the show together and don't forget to listen to our other show, the app show it's uh, on across uh, the country as well on the course radio network every Sunday. And you can also listen to both programs. We've got uh, our podcast versions of them up on our website, www.getconnectedmedia.com Mike Agarbo signing off for Get Connected. We'll see you again next time.